Right, here we are. I can't believe I'm saying this. Episode 99 of Talk for the Quickfire podcast where we ask four unique questions to some of the world's best people. And we've got one sitting right here, Mark Ormrod. Mark, how's it going, man? How's the day been so far? Hectic, as you know. <laughs> I apologise for being late. I am late. I'm never late. It's one of my pet hates, but I got here in the end. Thank you for having me um, in this unbelievably beautiful location. <laughs> this is... Uh, this is probably the fanciest and nicest place I've ever done a podcast in. Well, we are winning so far then, aren't Absolutely. we? Very glad to hear it. Um, so I had a look back at the messages. I think it was November of 22 that I first reached out. And we're here now at the, uh, the beginning of 24. So yeah. uh, there's a commitment to the grind right there, eh? Not, not yeah. too bad. Better make this uh, high value. <laughs> I'm sure you will, man. Right. So with the show, what I like to kind of do to start with always is just kind of go a bit into like the backstory of people and stuff too. So I think what we'll do is we'll go into obviously your military career and then kind of what happened and then go into some more actionable stuff after that. So to start with, obviously backstory, uh, what was your motivation really to get into the military and join up and just kind of walk me through the beginning of your career and, and everything there? So I was born in 1983, grew up in the the early, well, all through the 90s, um, kind of pre-internet, mm. pre-DVD, when VHSs were a thing, and there were limited channels on the TV. But I was uh, quite a big, and still am quite a big, action movie junkie. So I grew up with, you know, all these Stallone and Schwarzenegger movies and that kind of stuff. And, you know, when I wasn't outside running around hanging out with my mates and I was inside wearing these VHS cassettes down hmm. and uh, I don't know what it was I liked about them I just w was drawn to these these movies and the characters that were in these movies hmm. now as I was growing up getting closer towards the end of school I got to about 15 and a half and had that realization that after I had sat my exams you know, I, I had to choose which path I was going to take. Or even before I was going to take the exams, what path I was going to take. Was I going to go to college? Was I going to go to university? Or was I going to go into the big bad world and start a career? And I knew I wanted a career as opposed to a job. I wanted something where I could start at the bottom and then work my way up over however many years and then get as far up that ladder as I possibly could. Now, all of those friends that I talked about, that I used to hang around with, they were all older than me we all went to the, the same school but mm -hmm. they were two or three years older than me um so they'd all left by the time that i had got to to sit my exams and they'd yeah. all gone off into their careers and i had a friend in the army had several friends in the army uh, a couple in the navy uh, and a couple in the RAF. so they, they covered all the branches and when i was going through this stage of thinking you know what, what path am i going to take what am i going to do i started speaking to some of them and the thing that kind of drew me to the military initially was, you know, they'd come home on leave and they'd be like, oh, we've done this six mile run with this big bag on. We've been shooting machine guns. You know, one of my friends is, was in the tank regiment. So he's talking about all these tanks mm -hmm. that he's driving all over the place. Running over cars and all that. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing stuff up. And they always seem to have money and they were all driving new cars and they're all fit and healthy and, and seeing things and experiencing life and then I, I guess it was a combination of seeing these hollywood stars on the screen playing those roles and then having my friends live in those roles in real life i thought you know what this feels 
like the path for me. You know, when I sat down and thought about it and spoke to teachers and parents and friends, in, in my gut and in my heart, that kind of just felt like the right thing for me to do. Yeah. So I was only 15 and a half when I actually applied for the military. My friend in the tank regiment took me down to the career center and got me all the paperwork for the army initially. Mm -hmm. And then I took it home. And because of my age, my parents had to read it and sign it and give me permission to start the selection process. And then my dad told me that I had an uncle who was in the Royal Marines. And he only lived, I live in Plymouth. Um, he lived halfway between Plymouth and Exeter. So it wasn't that far from my house. So we arranged that weekend that I would go up and see him. We jumped in the car the Saturday morning, drove up. And I, I sat with him for a couple of hours and he talked me through his career in the Royal Marines. You know, he had started as a Marine, which is our equivalent of a private. And then he'd made his way up over 22 years, which is a, a full career to the rank of captain. And he told me about his career and the things that he'd done and seen and, you know, the kind of things I could expect to do and see if I went down that route and, and if I was successful with, with Aaron and the Green Beret. So then I went back home, went down to the career center, and saw the Royal Marines recruiter. And, you know, I remember it vividly. He put this VHS cassette in, and this was back when they had TV video combi things. <laughs> and he hit the play button and this recruiting advert came on. And I, I think my jaw just hit the floor. I, I just remember seeing that these guys on speedboats assaulting beaches and then, you know, up to their chest in water, going through the jungle. Then they were on skis with these massive packs on the back in the Arctic. And I just thought, who the hell are these guys? And I watched the video, spoke a little bit more to the recruiter. And I'm like, this is what I need to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The, I, I thought in my mind about all those action stars that I saw on TV and I thought, this is who they are. This is mm. what they do. And I want to see if, if I can do this. And after speaking to my uncle, he made it very clear to me how difficult it is and how high the attrition rate is and how many people fail to achieve it. And, and at this point, I wasn't even 16 years old, you know, so yeah. it was a, a big task. Is that quite young or is that about the usual age for recruitment no, stuff? It's not. I, I think many years ago it used to be. People used to go in a lot younger, but now, you know, 16, 17 is definitely not the normal. Um, people usually get a bit of life experience first mm. before they go in. But, you know, I had kind of set my mind and set my heart on it. There was nothing else really that I wanted to do. Nothing appealed to me. Um, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And I just, just this, part of me that wanted to to test myself you know what i mean and see mm. if i could do what all these men before had done and if i had what it took physically and mentally to achieve a green beret yeah so i'd got that paperwork got it signed sent it off went back to school done my exams did very well you know you sat 10 exams back then 10 gcses i got nine a to c's and one d so i could have gone to college potentially university but i wouldn't consider myself an academic it doesn't light me up you know yeah. it's hard work for me to to study and read and, and take tests and all that kind of stuff and because i was so focused on the royal marines i just sidelined all that I was happy with my grades you know did very well ticked that box and then just focused all my attention on on a career in the royal marines right interesting mm -hmm. so like with some of the people we've had on before we spoke about the navy seals and hell week and everything and it sounds brutal but so how the kind of the training side of that go for you how tough was that i i found it horrendous <laughs> you know, as you do I, i'm not gonna 
you know, dress it up and say, oh, you know, some parts were hard, some were easy. That the whole, I was 17 years old when I joined, so I was still a boy. And, and to give you some sort of an idea of, of what it's like, I'd never been away from home before on my own. And the first two weeks you go in this room and there were 64 other men in there and they'd come from all over the world. I was the second youngest mm-hmm. and you're just in a room full of beds. And it is like what you see in the film, five o'clock, the light comes on, some bloke screams at you, you're running around, showering, shaving. It's just like chaos. And every night of that first two weeks, I wanted to go home. My house was 45 minutes away. You know what I mean? But I felt like I was on the other side of the world. And every night I'm like, I could be home in an hour. I could be home in an hour. I could be home in an hour. Just telling myself that I could be back in my comfort zone within an hour. Yeah. And that made it a little bit hard to stay. But quite quickly, I made some friends in that uh, in that big communal room. Uh, friends that were older than me that had a bit more life experience that kind of took me under their wing. Yeah. And I just started to try and break it down and survive and do it one day at a time. Cool, man. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking about this recently, actually. So it's kind of people who take the, the long look at things. They think long term, especially in stuff like that. That's when it starts to get a bit overwhelming, right? But when you break it down into that sort of day by day, even hour by hour, I think that probably helps a bit more, right? Is that something that you think helped or? or You have to. Yeah. Because... If you get through Royal Marines training in one go, it's 32 weeks. If you get injured or you fail anything, then it's longer. Mm. When you factor in summer leave, Christmas leave, Easter leave, if you do do it in one go, that's still basically a year. And if you don't break that down, it's, it's hugely overwhelming. Mm. So, you, and you're right, you know, sometimes I'll break it into months, but the, even that was too big. Weeks sometimes were too big. Days were manageable, but some days were so chaotic it's almost like a school timetable. It's broken down into to classes and, and you know, one minute you're in the gym, then you're learning weapons, then you're doing field craft. Sometimes you have to break it down into individual instruction periods yeah, busy. just to get through a day because it just gets so mentally chaotic and physically exhausting that that's just the way I had to do it and had to get through it. Right. Mm. So you're in early career. Where did you go to start with then and kind of like talk us through to around the end of 2007 time then? So I joined the Royal Marines in February 2001. Mm-hmm. And I managed to make through make it all the way through in one go. I didn't get injured, I didn't fail anything. So I finished in October that year, four weeks after 9-11. So I remember coming to the end of training and everyone's morale's high because most of the hard work is out of the way. The last little bit is really just bit of admin, you do the marching and getting ready for the, the medals parade and all that kind of stuff, the pass out parade. And we were in the diner on camp, all just getting some snacks in between. I think we were doing drill at the time. Uh, we were just getting some snacks and then we saw 9-11 on the TV in there. Now, I had turned 18 at this point. Young, dumb, stupid, no idea about the world. So I, look, I remember looking around and everyone was like, yeah you know what I mean like the I don't know just acting dumb mm. thinking that you know we're going to war we're gonna I, I get it to a degree everyone was like we've just done all this training now we get to put it to the yeah point. but we didn't really know what it was actually all about and so I saw it the next couple of weeks passed out of training and then January 2002 was trained to go to Afghanistan or something called Operation Jakana mm-hmm now, I don't know why, but it got very, very close to the deployment and then a lot of it just got cancelled. Uh, a lot of us didn't end up going. They scaled right. it right back, which 
you know, in with the mindset that I was in back at, in those days was quite disappointing because you did want to go out there and see if all the stuff you've been trained to do actually worked and if you could do it. Yeah. So it was a little bit deflating. And then you kind of just settled into normal unit life. I went to Norway and learned how to, to fight and survive in the Arctic. Uh, did a few things around the UK. Then 2003 rolled around and Iraq became the focus. Yeah. So I did deploy to Iraq when I was 19 in March 2003. Did a tour out there. It, it wasn't what I expected it to be. Um, some people were involved in some pretty fierce fighting, but I didn't get anywhere near any of it. And again, I, I came back after three and a half months out there feeling a little bit deflated because you kind of just, you have put all this effort into all this training. You've learned so many skills and you want to see if you're capable of doing it. And then I thought I had the opportunity, but I didn't. Um, then, then life took a, a different turn. Um, my partner at the time fell pregnant. So I had a, a daughter due to be born in early 2005. So I decided that I was going to leave the Royal Marines and do a uh, do something different. I did that. I left. I retrained as a bodyguard out in South Africa. Uh, we separated during that period. Mm. So I was kind of out in South Africa one minute, living on a friend's sofa the next. Life wasn't going the way that I'd envisioned it. And so I decided to rejoin the Royal Marines in yeah. 2007. Now, when I rejoined, Afghanistan became the focus again, like it was in 2002. So I joined 40 Commando in Taunton. Uh, okay. They were next on the rotation to deploy. I went straight into pre-deployment training. And then on the 7th of September, 2007, uh, I deployed to Afghanistan for a six month tour. Right. I wonder how small the world is then, because I think the last guest I had on was Anthony Staz, uh, Stazica. Oh, okay. He said he was in Taunton as well, and the world seems to be uh, quite small in this community. So were you guys there at the same time? Did paths cross there at all, or was that a different uh, different, different period? No, I mean, he might have been there at the same time as me. But I, I didn't yeah. meet Staz until after we both left service. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's so a big old unit with about 1,200 men in it. Yeah. Know, so. Well, fair enough, man. So yeah. Well, we're there. So out of interest, before, um, you know, in your early career, did you have any close calls, any injuries or anything that happened before that? Or was it re relatively just a clean run for you then? Yeah, I mean, there were parts of Iraq that are a bit hairy, like yeah. being in a giant hole in the sand with chemical weapons, Yeesh. like flying. One landed like a kilometre away from us. Luckily, it didn't explode, but sat in a trench that we dug with what we call cat-free Romeo MBC suit. So it's a nuclear biological chemical warfare suit. Mm. Cat-free Romeo is like everything, the respirator, the hood on pulled up, right. like charcoal lined. So you imagine the heat in the desert oh, sure, with yeah. that on and me and my friends just staring at each other yeah. through these these eye holes and these respirators, literally waiting for like your skin to start boiling off. Christ. You know what I mean? So that was pretty hairy, but fortunately that never happened. In, in terms of firefights and all that kind of stuff i didn't have any in, in iraq so it's been mm. relatively quiet for me so no injuries no no close calls anything like that prior to afghanistan mm. Mm. right so we're at december then 2007 so what happened man like just tell us the story of that and yeah just walk, walk us through it how did it lead up to it where were you exactly and just what happened so we were working in a place called ford operating base robinson mm -hmm. in helmand province We've been there for about 
three, maybe three and a half months. And what our job was, we, we had a what we call an area of operations. Yeah. We would go out and patrol in those areas on foot. We would engage with the, the civilians that lived there and, and give them food and water and, you know, let them know to the best of our ability that we were there to try and help them. Mm-hmm. Um, if we had any intelligence on things like enemy locations or weapon caches, we'd go in and, and do whatever we were told to do there. And then if we weren't out patrolling the ground in our area, we were in our FOB defending that from any incoming enemy attacks. Yeah. And things have been going pretty well. We'd, we've been doing that, like I said, three, three and a half months. We had had several contacts with the enemy, several firefights. We'd never had any of our lads injured or, or hurt or killed, which was great. And then on the early hours of Christmas Eve morning, uh, myself and a handful of the lads were called up to the HQ compound and given the brief on what was to be our next routine foot patrol. Mm. So once we had the brief, we went back to our compound. We started preparing all of our kit and equipment like we'd done a million times before. We went back up to the HQ compound, formed up by the rear entrance of the camp and got ready to leave. Now, the patrols that we had done prior to this, they could last like six, seven, eight hours. You'd, you'd push two, three, four miles out. You, you had an objective and a mission. The idea of this literally was to walk out the back entrance of our camp in two groups of eight men. One would go north, one would go south. We were told to patrol the immediate perimeter, pushing no more than 300 meters from the perimeter wall, and then meet at the front entrance of camp. So basically, go out the back gate, go for a walk, come back to the front and close it down. Yeah. Just to, I guess, maintain the momentum that we built, to that po- built up to that point. And it wasn't, you know, we hadn't received any intelligence from any of our sources to say you need to be extra careful because this has been happening that's been happening so as far as we were concerned we were just going out for a bit of a bimble mm-hmm. so the time came and they opened up the the rear entrance to camp i was second in command of the group that went north the other guys went south and we went out and did what we were tasked to do about five hours into it uh both groups of men now found themselves on the opposite side of camp, so by the front entrance, ready to finish up for the day and, and go back in. And the group that I was with were on a high piece of ground, what we called the North Fort. Mm-hmm. So it was one of our uh, target indicators if we ever came into contact with the enemy. Now beneath that, as we looked down, you could kind of see a sort of bird's eye view of Ford Operating Base Robinson that we were working out of. And then beneath that was the other group of men that we left with earlier in the day. So tactically, we're in a very advantageous position because not only can we see everything around us, but when you're in a firefight, it's a lot easier to fight going down a hill than it is up. So our job in that instance was to provide protection for that other group. They would go into camp, get behind the perimeter wall where they were safer. They would provide protection for us. We'd come down off the high feature, go back into camp, mm-hmm. finish up for the day. Nothing that we hadn't done a million times before. Now... When we're up on the high feature, what you want to do if you're patrolling, when you, sh- when you stop and go farm, you want to get behind a wall, a tree, a rock, a building, something that's going to give you a bit of cover yeah. from view and cover from fire. But up on this high piece of ground, we didn't have those options. And the only option in my mind that we had for protection for ourselves was this shallow bowl that was in the ground. You know, I thought if we jumped in this shallow bowl, got on our stomachs, anyone that's looking up, 
it's going to have a very difficult time to see us, which means they're going to have a very difficult time trying to engage us with whatever weapons mm. they're using. So the guy in charge, he took half of the section and started giving them fire positions to protect that other group of men. I jumped in this shallow bowl in the ground and the guys that were in my half of the section started taking their fire positions. So I stood back for a little bit and observed, you know, I had to make sure that we were defensively as tight as we possibly could be. And then when they were happy, they turned around and gave me the thumbs up. And when they were happy and when I was happy, I started walking over towards the position that I selected for myself. And as I put my right knee on the floor to get on my stomach, uh, that was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Jeez. Yeah. Um, not my best day. It was Christmas Eve as well. So not my best Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Um, but yeah, I mean, in retrospect, looking back, I was 24 years old at the time. I didn't, know a lot about a lot when you look back now it's an obvious place to to plant an id because like i said there's limited options for cover they found the the best option in that terrain and thought okay this is where lads will go so we'll just put landmines in there Ugh, horrible um you know but i didn't know that at the time i didn't think that way at the time um and like i said i, I knelt on and detonated that improvised explosive device which instantly took off uh, both my legs uh, and my right arm. Wow. Mm. Any memory of at that moment or is it all hazy? Was, has it been told back to you or do you... Complete you memory, the whole thing. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember the entire thing. It was pretty intense, yeah. uh, pretty chaotic. If you can imagine the, the terrain that we were working in, so very sandy and very dusty. So yeah. when this, this IED exploded, it created like a dust cloud. So initially... I couldn't see anything. I had no pain. I didn't know that I had stood on an improvised explosive device and thought we were under attack from like a mortar or an RPG or something like that. So my initial instinct was find out where that attack came from and neutralize the threat and get everyone out safely. Now, where I was, I knew that about 600 meters behind me, down on the low ground where the other group of men were, there was like a rectangular block of trees and, and everything else around the area was just like flat mud fields. So in my mind, you got, you got to bear in mind, you, your adrenaline spiked, I can't see anything, I can hear everyone around me screaming and all I'm thinking is find out where the threat is mm. and neutralize it. So in my mind, I'm saying, right, turn around, Mark, because that's the only place anyone with any common sense is going to attack you from because you won't be able to see them. They can, we call it shoot and scoot. So they'll shoot and then leg it into the trees, mm. not, to the, not in the mud the mud fields. So I, in all that chaos, was saying, turn around, Mark, turn around. I did the enemy and start shooting. If I start shooting, because my weapon wouldn't have been that effective at that range, but we had this massive heavy machine gun about 100 meters away in camp. So that would have saw where we were shooting. Then it could have tore the whole forest down. So I'm saying, turn around, turn around, turn around. I did the enemy, start shooting. When the lads see I'm shooting, they'll all start shooting. And then we can hopefully get out of here safely. Now I can't see anything because of this huge dust cloud that's created but after about four times in my mind of saying turn around turn around turn around even though i couldn't see anything i knew that my body wasn't doing what mine was telling it to do yeah do you know what i mean you just yeah. know don't you i'm trying to turn and i know what that feels like and it, and it felt very different and i didn't know what was happening so i just thought okay i'll wait 
I'll wait until this dust cloud settles. I'll look around, observe the situation, make some very quick calls on the ground and figure out what it is I'm going to do. So we got to about chest height. And, and I was, you know, like I've never had an adrenaline dump like that in my life. It's just like you're just wired. <laughs> and I'm panicking because potentially some of my friends in college could have been hurt or killed. And I didn't want that. As I looked around, I couldn't see any of them. You know, they had been blasted out of the area because of the IED. Jesus. And so I just carried on waiting. You know, I, I couldn't make any decisions in that moment because there weren't anything to make. And then the, the, the dust cloud eventually got close to the ground, hit the ground, disappeared. And at that moment, I looked down to where my legs should have been. And they, they had both been just completely ripped off uh, from the knees down. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, and, and it's a very... It's a very surreal experience that there was no pain. Um, my, my brain, I think, struggled to process what I was looking at. And I think because I wasn't in any pain, that made it harder to process. And it's very, you just, you just look at it and it feels like a dream. And <laughs> you don't really know what's going on. But I didn't sit there for that long because I thought about the rest of my team again. And I looked over my shoulder to see if I could see anybody. And I saw... The man in charge, uh, Corporal Helsby, we had gone through training together in 2001. His eyes were like, you know, yeah, wired yeah. And, and he had no color in his face. So I looked at this and I couldn't quite process what it was. And then I look at him and I couldn't really process why he was looking that way. So I went to look back to my legs to try and figure, and then it sounds bizarre, but to just want to figure out what's going on because you'd expect feelings of panic and, and, and all this lot of fear. And, and that wasn't what it was like. It was just confusion and, and overwhelm. Yeah. And I went to look back to my legs to kind of confirm to myself that what I looked at just now was real, coupled with what I was looking at with Sean. And as I got here, I saw my arm like lying in the sand and it was still attached to my body. But from my bicep to my wrist, the whole thing had been ripped open. And... Uh, all the bone in the top of my arm and the bottom of my arm was shattered. My hand was still in pretty good order. I don't know why I did this, but I kind of picked my hand up, put it in front of my face, moved it around a little bit, and then just dropped it in the sand and just let out this massive scream uh, as I realized that, that in that moment oh, what had my happened. God. And, you know, I, I knew we weren't under attack and I knew that then I had been the guy that had stood on and detonated the IED. Mm. Um, yeah. Wow. And then a just frantic, chaotic, but highly professional evacuation took place. What got me out of there as quick as they could. Wow. So, I mean, on the website and stuff, so having a look at what obviously they say about you and what you've obviously written on your own website, what I read was that you were medically pronounced as dead twice. Yeah. When did that happen and what stage was that? And, you know, kind of guide me through a little bit of the, you know, you've just, that's just happened. What, what do you do then? Like, what does the team do? You said very highly professional. So, mm. yeah, walk me through it. So once the rest of the section did everything they were tasked to do, so one radioed in, the medic, one was coordinating def a defensive uh, bubble, one was on his belly, prodding the ground for other devices and marking a route for the medic. The medic eventually got to me give me the morphine, put the tourniquets on, put me on a stretcher, took me out, got me to a helicopter. The last thing I remember is this helicopter landing. 
but I've met the entire medical team that were on it since that day. And uh, this is what they told me happened. I don't remember any of this. But they land the helicopter, they put me on the back. There was another guy injured in the blast and he had shrapnel in his tricep and shrapnel in his back. So it wasn't life-threatening. And the way you prioritize casualties in a scenario like this is if you've got a guy that's dead and a guy that's dying, as harsh as it sounds, you have to ignore the dead guy because you don't want two dead guys. Of course. Yeah. So they, they felt for a pulse and they said I didn't have one. They couldn't get any intravenous lines into my veins because they'd all collapsed because of the massive blood loss. And then when they put an oxygen mask on me, they said it should have steamed up to show that I was breathing, but it didn't. So they pushed me in the corner and, and pronounced me as dead. Luckily for me, when one of the medics that was working on the other casualty walked past me to get some equipment, he said that my eyes started to flutter, which to them meant my heart was still beating. So then the medic alerted some of the other crew and they came over and got to work on me. Now, I mean, it's almost like a, a made up fairy tale or a made up story, the bit that happened next, but three days before I was injured, whoever's in charge of like the military medical world had greenlighted this new technique to be used where if you couldn't get an intravenous line into some of these veins, then you would drill into their tibia and fibula and you could administer fluids that way. Slight problem there. Problem being, <laughs> I don't have a tibia or fibula. <laughs> so these medics, like, and you've got to imagine the scenario here, right? You're on the back of a Chinook helicopter, right? There's sand and dust everywhere. It's going from left to right because there's high probability of RPGs and AK-47 rounds coming from the ground. You've got this absolute mess of a body in front of you that's just shown no signs of life. You've got this glimmer of hope of giving him fluids for his tibia and fibula. Then you understand that he hasn't got a tibia or fibula. So now you're like, what do we do? So those medics, uh, again, highly professionals, super courageous, decided they were going to drill into my hip, uh, one in the front, one in the back, and they were going to try to administer fluids that way. Mm -hmm. So the first time they did it, they said it failed uh, because they didn't pull the skin tight enough. Mm -hmm. So they, they pulled the lines out, tightened the skin, went back in. So the second time the line bit, the fluids went in and they said within three minutes, I was awake and responsive and coherently answering the questions that they were asking me. So I, I don't remember any of this, <laughs> but yeah, within three minutes, I'd gone from, from death to life. Um, Man, yeah, they brought me back. That is just shocking. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a story. I, I, I mean, for me, sitting here, I'm looking and thinking, how is this guy sat here right no, now? No. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so recovery process after that, I mean, what did you have to do to get better? I mean, looking at you now, it's just, you know, you're, you're diving, you've got purple belt and jiu-jitsu, mm -hmm. you're in the Invictus Games. Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about overachiever of the freaking year award, dude. I mean, what did it take to get to at least this stage right now and you know recovery after that going home and everything what did you have to do i mean any support from from the uk military and government and stuff or yeah i had a lot of support from mm. from the royal marines from military charities from friends and family and colleagues and all that um and what what i'm always quite keen on doing is letting everyone know that in the beginning it was absolutely brutal like everything, you know, I've got a giant hole. I had a giant hole in my hand 
in, mm. from shrapnel. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I could only use two fingers in the beginning. My hand was bandaged up. I had tubes in my nose. All my back where the bones and, and tears are was, were bandaged up. You know, your body has to go through a massive adjustment period in the beginning. Uh, amputees run a lot hotter than able-bodied people. Mm. So, you know, and the, adjusting to that initially, constantly being hot, sweating. I was right-handed, then I had to adjust to a left hand. When you're missing both your legs above the knee, it takes you three to 500% more energy to do anything than an able-bodied person. And plus, I'd lost my dominant arm. So the beginning, when I got out of hospital, I did six weeks in hospital. I had three follow-up surgeries to clean all the, the dust and dirt and, and rubbish out of my wounds. And then I went to rehab. I had to wait a little bit for everything to heal properly because I didn't want to risk any infections. And then when they gave me my prosthetics and I started learning to walk, it, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I, I didn't think it would be. I massively underestimated it and thought, I'm fit. I'm a Royal Marine. Give me it and I'll sort it. And that, that definitely wasn't the case. And it, it made it harder because, so I was the UK's first triple amputee, I think since the First World War, from a military conflict. Yeah. And no one knew what to do with me. Like they, they dealt with bilateral above knee amputees before, but it doesn't seem much, but having an arm missing as well is a whole other ball game. So there was no path that had been trodden that we could have just walked down. We had to figure it out ourselves, which made everything a lot slower. You know, the energy expenditure, the, and I mean this respectfully, but the lack of knowledge mm -hmm. about what these legs can do, what the arm can do. You know, it was all very low level kind of stuff. I've learned since. Yeah. These things are phenomenal, but if you don't know how to get the most out of them, then... I don't know, it's like having a Ferrari with no wheels on it. You know what I mean, you're not going to get <laughs> yeah. the most out of that. Um, so it was, it, was, it was brutal in the beginning, physically, mentally, emotionally, everything. There was no one I could go to initially for any guidance or mentorship because I was the first. I, I did speak to some triple amputees in the UK, but, and again, with respect, they, they all had chosen to use wheelchairs. And from the very beginning, I knew that. I didn't want to use a wheelchair. I wanted to be as independent as I could and get rid of that thing as quickly as I could. Mm. So it was difficult. It, it was it was hard. Um, it involved a lot of uh, failure, constant failure. It was painful, like physically painful, everything, constantly falling over, smashing my face off of handrails and chairs oh. and, yeah. you know, just trying to protect my only good arm from, from further injury. But uh, like I said, I had a lot of support around me uh, from the from the Marines, from charities, from friends and family. And I did eventually find a mentor in America. And, you know, the short version of this story is I, I jumped on a plane in June 2009, went out and spent three weeks with him and his team. And they enabled me to become a full-time prosthetic user. I haven't used a wheelchair since the 9th of June 2009. I got wow. rid of it to, to reduce the temptation of ever using it. And uh, just went out and worked with people that had trodden this path before who had, you know, six years of knowledge and experience that could pour that into me in three weeks and, and accelerate my rehab as, as quickly as they could. Wow, man, that's crazy. Um, mm. I think what I'm thinking now is because, you know, some of the people have had them before, they've taken the approach to these things differently. And, you know, people react to these things in a different way. But mentally for you, you know, sitting there in hospital, having all this stuff done to you and trying to get 
you know some sort of normality back were you at a stage where it was like this is all over for me now or were you kind of in that warrior sort of soldier mentality of like the next thing next challenge what's my purpose now or like when when did you start to kind of think i'm actually going to try and build like something that you've built obviously i mean you've got an amazing brand you inspire people everywhere i mean when did you start to think that was going to happen along that line um you know the first four weeks in hospital were, were rough mm. you know i had the talk from the doctor that you never walk again he explained to me about the energy expenditure and, and the pain and, and all this and you know that he had never met anybody who had only just one leg missing above the knee that was successful being a full-time prosthetic user yeah so that was pretty rough but then i met someone who had lost both his legs he had both his arms uh but he was out there walking so that gave me a bit of hope and then when i met cameron out in america and saw what he was doing as a triple amputee then i was kind of locked in from there because my whole mindset is well if this guy can do it if I just replicate as close as I can his physical and mental process, why can't I do it? Yeah. And I've got him here on tap for three weeks. I've got all the people that got him there on tap for three weeks. I've just got to gain as much knowledge from them as possible, practice as much as possible while I'm with them because this is a limited opportunity. And then, you know, hopefully achieve a similar level of independence to what he was at, which is what happened. And a lot of, a lot of the... The kind of mindset that got me through all that was my my pride in being a Royal Marine. You know, I I had never met, heard of, or read about anybody in the Royal Marines who had just quit anything they'd ever done. You know, we had we have this illustrious history going all the way back to 1664, mm. and I didn't want to be the guy to let the team down. Standards to uphold. Well, that's exactly what it was. I I took the standards and the values of the Royal Marines and apply them to rehabilitation and life outside of the military. And that was one of the keys for me. You know, I, I remember someone said to me, just because you're not wearing a uniform anymore, it doesn't mean you're not a Royal Marine. Because it's a mental thing, it's a mindset. And it's the way you approach goals, tasks, life. It's the values you live at, it's the morals you have, it's the standards that you uphold for yourself. And no one will ever hold me to as higher standards as I'll hold myself. Mm. And that got me through a lot. And I'm not, I'm not messing around. You know, when I was in America training, sometimes I was in, in bed crying at night. Not just because of how much physical pain I was in, but because I just didn't know if I had what it took to step over that line and leave the wheelchair behind. It was quite a lonely time for me because I had to go on my own. You know, I was surrounded by strangers and I was putting myself through the ringer to, to try and achieve what the guy mentoring me had achieved, uh, or at least the degree of it to that point. And it was it was brutal, but I, you know, you said at the beginning, long term. I'm a long term thinker in everything I do, and I just thought this is short term pain for long term gain. If I can just get through that. this, like I got through Royal Marines training, once I had that green beret, I've got it for life. Once I ditch that wheelchair, okay, it may not be for life. As I age, get to about you know when I get to like 173, I might have to use a wheelchair. Maybe <laughs> I don't know, but. Spent all your nine lives at that point. <laughs> yeah. I knew once I'd mentally crossed over a line and got to a point without a wheelchair that I'd never need to use it again unless, you know, I'm, I'm old and my, my health forces sure. me to. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think long term, you know, and it was a lot to put myself through, but it was worth doing. Mm, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. What were some of those things, like you said that, 
you took a few things from your training and from that, you know, the standard being upheld there. So like, what were some of those practices? What were some of those things that you took from there and you were applying into the recovery process that you think made like the biggest difference? Because, you know, I think people uh, will kind of go into like the applicable stage now too. So, you know, if you can lace in a few kind of tips and things that people may be going through something as well. And what were some of the things that you kind of did or thought or just tried to uphold in that recovery process that you took from that military career, which you think was like at least, you know, critical to some degree to getting you to where you are now, which is obviously just brilliant. Sat here doing podcasts. <laughs> I mean, the, the first thing is, uh, is cheerfulness in the face of adversity. That's one of our big things in, in the War Marines, you know, no matter how cold or wet or hungry or tired or, or anything you are, if you can be that man to find a bit of humor in that situation and spread that humor to the lads that's what gets you through stuff it's not all about physical fitness or any of that kind of stuff and i really needed a sense of humor when i was going through rehab yeah. to look at myself as a 24 year old you know with missing three limbs to figure out how am i going to get through this so that helped a lot discipline was a big thing you know when i went to america because i wasn't allowed to take a wheelchair because i was on my own Every morning, no matter how sore I was or tired I was or how many cuts I had on my legs, I had to put them on again and walk that day. You know, I had to be disciplined enough to do that and not say, not today, lads. I'm just going to chill. You know, the, the Royal Marines mindset is a big thing as well. You know, it's uh, it's all about adapting and, and overcoming and figuring stuff out. And, you know, just if you can't just go through something, you go around it, over it, under it, yeah. and you just you just keep going and keep going. And resilience. Resilience is the biggest thing because, like I said earlier, I failed so much going through rehab. Like, every day, like 400 times, I would fail things. But you learn from them. And then you, you adjust and you figure out how to get around that and you don't make the same mistakes the next day. And then you improve a little bit and you improve a little bit. And that's the biggest thing is... For me, it was the the small incremental gains, like walking a little bit further, staying out of my wheelchair a little bit longer, uh, taking a little bit less medication. You know, I, I don't recommend this at all to anybody. I'm not a doctor, but I I cold turkey like ditched my medication once <laughs> overnight within the first fourteen months because I just part of it was laziness because I was taking so many. And the other part, I just didn't think much of it was that necessary. I guess it plays into the long-term thing as well there, right? Like you would take that short-term pain of ditching them, but for that long-term... Like, there was no short-term pain. This is really? the funny thing. It's a quick side story. Mm. So in rehab, you generally do like a four-week stint. And then because you're putting your body through so much, you go home for like two weeks to recover. And I was at home one day and it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I think I was watching Jeremy Kyle. Right? because I didn't have anything to do in a day and I had this big it was quite a big telly like a 40 odd inch TV and I was sat in the chair I didn't have prosthetics on this is when I was a wheelchair user and I was sat watching the telly and I was looking at the you know you got the screen and then there's like a inch of plastic around the outside yeah I was looking at the plastic and I'm listening to the telly and I, I'm having there's no one in the house except for me and I'm having this conversation with myself and I'm looking at this plastic going what are you doing, Mark? Why aren't you watching the TV? Turn your head. Turn your head and watch the TV, you idiot. And, I hadn't, and eventually I just snapped out of it and put, uh, went back to watch the TV. I looked at my phone. I'd been sat there for three hours 
right? Wow. Talking to myself in my head and I'm like, I don't want this medication anymore. Like, I can't think straight. I'm fuzzy. I put on a lot of weight. And that's a big thing with these because when your limbs fluctuate in size, then your legs don't fit and they become really tight or they become too loose. More pressure in it too, I imagine as well. Yeah, so you've got to regulate your weight and the medication didn't help with that. So I just thought, right, I'm going to ditch it and I'll get up the next day and see how much pain I'm in. And then I'll adjust from there. I'll take what I need to take. So I got up the next day, no pain. Got to like lunchtime, I'm fine. Got to tea time, still fine. I'm like, huh, weird. So I got up the next day, no pain. And I'm like, why have I been taking? I think I was taking 18 pills for breakfast, 18 at lunch, and 18 at dinner time. Oh my and God. And most of the pills with the counteract the side effects of the pill that I'd taken before, it was just ridiculous. <laughs> so I was like, right, okay, two days pain free. Brilliant. Let's see how we get on. Week gone by, two weeks, a month. I'm like, never need that again. So I just, and I don't recommend, I'm not a doctor. Yeah. And that won't work for everybody. And there are some medications that are absolutely necessary. But for me, it was more to do with like pain reduction and I wasn't in any pain. So I was like, what do I need it for then? It's just another thing. So I got rid of that. Then like I say, eventually the wheelchair was another thing. I got rid of that. I stripped all the adaptions out of my house because I didn't want to live in an environment where I needed things. Because, mm. you know, this house we're in now, they won't have grab handles in the toilet. They won't <laughs> have a ramp. They won't have a lift to take me up the stairs. If I need to get up there, I have to use the stairs. So I got rid of all that stuff and just started reducing all of the the disabled equipment and just living as independently as I could. Jesus, man. Mm. I mean, you've done so well with all of that too. And Invictus Games too. I mm. mean, when did you think that would be a... When did you think that would happen? <laughs> I was, that's crazy. I mean, how many medals did you win there again? 11. That's just... That's wild. <laughs> yeah. and, and I'll be honest with you. I hated the thought of adaptive sports. I, I Why? I found it very condescending, mm. patronizing. You know, I was a Royal Marines commando. Prior to being injured, I was an amateur kickboxer. I competed in Muay Thai and I boxed. Now people are telling me to sit on the floor and play volleyball. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, that's not a, a, a hardcore sport. That's not what I do. And, you know, and I looked at it from afar and it was like, you did, in, in my mind back then you would achieve the simplest thing and everyone was giving you all this praise and I'm like what <laughs> I don't get it do you know what I mean so and I really stayed away from it I massively misjudged it by the way um because in 2016 I was sat at home and I was setting out all my goals for the following year and I realized that 2017 was my 10-year anniversary so I wanted to do something to celebrate mm. and the Invictus Games was two years old and I'd seen all my friends go out there and compete and win medals and I thought, you know, the medals were cool, but because I knew them outside of that environment, I saw how they had changed in like, their confidence. They got their confidence back. And whereas they were a bit standoffish with, with people and, and bits and pieces, then they had changed in that way. And they reintegrated with their families and mm. wanted to take up a parenting role again where they may not have done that before. You know, so I, I saw the, I guess, intangible benefits of it. Um, outside of winning medals so I applied and uh, I'll be honest with you I, I really didn't think I had any chance of making the team 772 people applied I had never done this any adaptive sport before I wasn't in any of those circles or any of those groups or cliques so I was a complete outsider um, but I went 
and I went to the trials and uh, that was when I realized actually that it wasn't patronizing. I did four minutes at full power on a rowing machine. I went blind for the last 15 seconds and nearly passed out. Wow. Um, and then I realized actually these are real athletes, like proper athletes and I need to train and adjust my mindset to be one as well. And uh was fortunate enough to make the team. And then immersed myself in a year of training alongside, you know, I had a full-time job at the at the time. My goal was to win medals, was to win gold medals. And I didn't do that the first year. I got two silvers and two bronzes. But I learned a lot. And then I went back the following year. I uh, was lucky enough to make the team again. And I took all the lessons that I learned about how sport works, the rules, the strategies of all these different disciplines I was competing in, and then uh, managed to get the goals. Nice man. Yeah. Well done, you did. That's yeah. a that's a hell of an achievement. Um, so I mean, listening to all this stuff, it, it makes me laugh because I feel like we live in this culture now where everyone is complaining about so much stuff, and we're taking so much for granted, mm. and. It just, you know, it's it's sobering to your your own first world problems and stuff when you see someone who's like conquered as much as you. I mean, I look at you and I just think conquer or mm. adversity. So, you know, what I wrote down here was, you know, what are some of your your thoughts on this kind of culture right now? People just complaining about stuff, these tiny, unimportant things that they've got going on in their lives and stuff. You know, from someone like you who's obviously done what you've done you know what do you think about you know that culture that we're in right now and stuff and what would kind of be your message if you will to people in general for kind of living in the moment more and just recognizing that the things that they've got going on which they think is so bad actually you know it's it could be so much worse and what you've actually got going on mm. right now is actually really pretty swish you know what thoughts there I, I do struggle a lot when I look around at the world now for reasons like that and and even you know it's very kind of you to say all that stuff but if you read books like man's search for meaning then you'll realize what adversity is mm. i don't know if you've heard it no I haven't, it. actually i'll, I'll check about it out. A, a gentleman who was in uh, a concentration camp for years and every day is he never knew whether he was going to die or not and he watched his friends get killed all the time and he eventually escaped um you know, these these piles of dead bodies all the time when they kill people and he got in there and managed to get out in a truck. But, you know, what he went through is is immense. And you just pick up a book and read about these people from our past that have been through, you know, Second World War, going through rationing and the Blitz and getting evacuated and all these things. Like, that's brutal. Like, kids went through all of that. And, you know, through it, as hard as it was, they developed resilience and they are they're not all of them but the majority of them turn into to great people because of that and i don't know i just struggle now it's very easy nowadays life i could you know pick up my phone now and order a cheeseburger and get it brought to here Should we, do that? Think, we can do it after but <laughs> life's so easy now and you know you see people moaning and my kids do it sometimes if, if they can't get 5g <laughs> that's the biggest problem in their life and i'm like Geez, if that's the biggest problem in your life, then then you're doing all right, you know. But human beings are capable of incredible things, and we need to be tested. You know, we need to develop resilience. We need to de to face hardship, to to pull out our, our potential. Mm. You know, and I don't know. Like I said, I I struggle with it a lot. Um, 
looking around at the world and the way it is nowadays. Um, it's great, you know, the technology that we have has made our lives easier. For a disabled person, it's brilliant. This is the best time in the world to be a disabled person because of the technology that exists. Mm. But yeah, it's it's difficult. I do struggle with it. I try not to be preachy with it. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. There's not a lot I can do about it. No, not at all. Um, but, I, you know, I know from some people that I know and stuff too that people going through really hard stuff and everything you know sometimes it's not actually what they're going through to themselves that's the hardest part sometimes it's actually looking around and seeing people with such rosy little lives who've got great stuff going on but they're just complaining all the time and they kind of think along the lines of like god i wish you could just be me for a day and then you'd realize how great everything is like is that something that you you struggle with as well you know looking around and seeing people kind of you know taking life you know just completely for granted and, and not recognizing that or you know do you just see <laughs> you know lucky you kind of thing yeah i i try not to be too judgy mm. people because you never know what's going on with people you only know what you see on the surface right but yeah life is something that you definitely shouldn't take for granted you know i mean I, my my opinion is that you know, when I when I get to the end of my life at a hundred, did I say seventy four? Yes, yeah, I'm around the seventy it. mark. I'm yeah, but I mean that's that's aiming low, right? Yeah. yeah, for now, for now. But when I when I get to the end of my life, I want to, and it's, it sounds really corny and cliche, but I want to look back and be proud of the adversity that I've overcome, mm -hmm. the people that I've been able to help on the way, the life that I've built for myself and my family. You know, I don't want it to be easy and I don't want everything to be given to me because mm. I don't feel any pride in that. Do you know what I mean? I, I want to sure. be able to get that. And, you know, we're all getting like too spiritual. You know, if there is a life after this life, I think I think the whole reason we're here is to learn stuff, right? And to be tested for the next phase, if there is a next phase. And I, I like to think that if there is, you know, and I'm at, that junction they go you know what you did all right down there mate you learned a lot you overcame a lot that's what it's about go on, like a computer game go on to the next level you know i mean i don't <laughs> want to come back and relive it again i want to move on you know so it's i don't know it's uh, i just wish sometimes you wish you could get people and shake them and go like set yourself a challenge set yourself <laughs> a go go push yourself because i think once you realize what you're capable of it becomes a little bit of an addiction mm. do you know what i mean you're like damn i didn't think i could do that and when you realize that you can, you're like, wow, I wonder what else I can do. And then you go on again and again and again. And then, you know, you, you're squeezing the juice out of your life, you know? Mm. Mm. Top tips for doing that. You know, everyone listening in, top tips for building that adversity, defiance, and every day, you know, just something every day, every week, every month. Like, what, what can you someone listening what can they take from at least your experience with doing this and getting to where you are now through despite everything every day what is it what does it start with what does it end with doing or or mentality wise to build that that tough skin i guess and and you know go conquer go like you said go set yourself a challenge like thoughts I mean, the only way to become more resilient is to consciously put yourself in situations that are going to test you right so you know running an ultra marathon, ice bathing, ice swimming, whatever it is, working out, desert marathon, something difficult that's going to, you're like, damn, that looks hard. I went, like when I went in the Royal Marines, I had no idea whether I would have took to achieve it or not, 
but step by step, bit by bit, I unlocked that inside me, mentally and physically, that I needed to get to that next level. Mm -hmm. So if you want to develop resilience, then you just have to consciously put yourself in situations that are going to have to force you to dig deep and be resilient. Yeah. You know, in terms of life as a whole, and this is this is very difficult, and it, and it comes to people at different times in their life, and I don't think many of us spend enough time on it, but you have to develop, not develop, to understand what your purpose is. Mm. So you need to figure that out as soon as you can. My overarching purpose... Hello, mate. Hello. <laughs> we've got one on the podcast. <laughs> we've got visitor. <laughs> Episode 100. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So my overarching purpose uh, for my entire life is to become the ultimate version of myself, mm -hmm. which isn't achievable, which is why I always strive for it and why it's so cool. Mm. Because when you do get to the end of your life, you, you're never going to be the perfect article, right? But if you're striving for it every day, getting 1% better every day, you, your life's going to yeah. improve every day. Do you know what I mean? That's my overarching purpose in, in my life is to constantly strive to become the ultimate version of myself. And I'll never reach that goal, which means I'll always keep striving for it. Cool. Nice, man. Well, I mean, all I want to ask you now really is, I mean, looking at how much you've achieved and how much you've done despite all of that, what's what's next? Like, what's on the horizon? Have you got any kind of like really big dreams, big plans, big goals or anything that you've got coming up? I mean... Uh, you've done you've done so much already, mm. but what what does the future look like for you right now? Do you think, at least in your own head, this is very uncomfortable for me to talk about? Okay, um, I've done a lot in the, you know you talk about Invictus Games, so you got the medals. I've done the fundraising. I think it's got to be close to five mil or something across the board now wow. over the years with that. You know, I don't even like to say this, but I've got like racks of awards at my house some you know pride of britain awards and, and all this kind of stuff and that stuff's great but like the next 10 years of my life is dedicated to making a massive amount of money right and not for the reasons that you think mm -hmm. not because you know i'm fancy or anything like that but to show my, my thinking is if a man with four fingers and one thumb on a smartphone can achieve a huge level of success financially than anyone can so it's more it's more of a like a this is what I did, this is how I did it with one hand, anyone can do it. And so I've started over the last couple of years positioning myself with people that can make that happen, mentorship. I just joined a mentor, a mastermind group uh this last week now, um, with people that are much more successful than I am. So like when I learned to walk, I got mentoring. Mm -hmm. Now in a different arena, I'm going to get mentoring to figure out how to do that. Because I don't know how to do it. I joined the military straight from school. It's not my world. Business is not my background. But it's all learnable. And with the right teacher and the right mentor, then just like when I was learning to walk and I had those people teach and mentor me, I can do it in this world too. I'll probably give most of it away. <laughs> you only need so much, right? Mm. Probably just lash all my friends up and you know give a bunch away. But I just... When I sit down and close my eyes and think about my goals and the things I've done and the things I want to do, that that's an area of my life that I haven't conquered yet. So that's the one I'm going for now. I like it. I think that's a solid mic drop moment. Mark, uh, promote away, dude. That's been the four questions, but, you know, social media, anything you want people to take a look at and everything. And, you know, where can we find more on you? I think I read that you've uh, got a little social media team set up now and everything. That must make yeah. things easier. So where can we find... Uh, additional inspiration for oh. things you so i'm on instagram 
Threads, X, Facebook, YouTube. I've just started another a podcast with a friend of mine, Ricky. It's called the Beyond Limits Podcast. Cool. Got the website. Um, and that's about it for now. Basically anywhere. Anywhere where you've got a Wi-Fi signal, you can probably find me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about having a unique name, right? I mean, you have no exactly. idea how nice it is to have a name like Louis Scoopian. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. no yeah. trouble there with, uh, <laughs> with usernames and stuff. But yeah, man, just absolute pleasure to have you on. Thanks for uh, making the trip today. It's just been a been a pleasure and honor and inspiration, My dude. My pleasure, mate. Thank Thanks, you. Dude. Appreciate it, man. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.